We have arrived together at the end of the book of 1 Timothy that we have been working through. So for the last time, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. Because next time, I don't know where we're going to be. But (laughs) open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. And uh, jokingly, I say for the last time because the sermon is also titled, For the last time, Guard the Gospel. Guard the Gospel. Again and again throughout this book, the Apostle Paul has been telling Pastor Timothy in Ephesus to guard the gospel. Uh, Parents, have you ever had to tell your children the same thing more than once before they actually did it? Yeah. This is, sometimes grown-ups are the same way. So Paul keeps saying it, and he's saying it to our church too. Guard the gospel, guard the gospel, guard the gospel. In 1 and 2 Timothy, faith is portrayed as a war. Faith is like a war. Check this out. These are soldiers in combat. This is what faith can be like at times. It's a battle. Not just a battle out there, but a battle in the church for what is right. And you don't want the war to end poorly for you. So look at this picture. This is The war ended poorly for for this pilot back in the day. But you don't want that. You don't want a crash landing. So you want to fight the fight and win the fight. This book is a charge to our church, commanding us to remain faithful. This isn't a passive book. This isn't commanding us to sit back and let God take care of it all. This is summoning all of us to stand guard over what we value. We're supposed to march to the front lines where our faith will be assaulted and tested and people will try and change it and twist it. We're supposed to open fire. We're supposed to, as a church, be able to actively oppose people who seek to change our doctrine or our discipleship. We're all standing guard. Guard the gospel. That's the title here. Hey, we will face tremendous pressure to change what we teach and how we live. Now listen, that pressure will come from the world. But we're not talking about that. This whole book has been about the pressure that comes from inside the church to change what we teach and how we live. So we're learning as a church how to stand our ground, keep our convictions. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this book, this challenging book that has helped us to become the church you want us to be. We know that you're perfecting and growing us and we will never be done becoming the church that you desire for us to be. But we ask that you would continue to show us the way we should walk, teach us what we should guard and value, help us to see what we need to avoid. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, Some verses are aimed at you and your walk with the Lord. Other verses are aimed at you and your relationships or your family. This whole book is actually aimed at our church. What kind of a church are we becoming? So it says here in verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Begins by saying, O Timothy. Paul reared Timothy up in the faith and took him on him missionary journey, several of them, and then left him in towns to pastor these churches. And and you could hear his affection as a father saying, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. But you could just as well put your name in that. Oh, fill in your name. Guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. You could put our church name there. Oh, harvest, guard the deposit entrusted to you. We are responsible for protecting what God has given us. So you can write this down. The first thing that we find in this last couple of verses is this. We have to guard the gospel. You can write that down in your notes in the bulletin. Guard the gospel. 
It says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That phrase there, deposit entrusted, uh, they use two English words to translate one Greek word. And the word means something valuable deposited for safekeeping. It's a valuable deposited into your care. So you learn here that the gospel, which is what this means, the gospel has been given to you from somewhere else. It has been entrusted to you. God handed this truth to you. You didn't invent it. You didn't design it. It was given to you. It was given to our church. Our church didn't sit together in some board meeting and say, well, what do we believe? What is our gospel? It was given to us. So it came from outside of us. Because God handed this to us, what are we going to do with it? The answer is we have to protect it. This insinuates that it's under attack, that it will come under fire if we don't protect it. So God gave us something, and what, what are we going to do? We're going to become a vault to guard it. We're going to become a fortress to keep it protected so that nobody steals it away from us. This is a message to our church. We must guard the gospel. Uh, I mentioned that I went to Romania. Um, it was a 12-day trip. We went to explore seven cities, visited five churches or churches about to launch, just to see what, uh, how church planting is working there and how we can further support that. Um, and while we were there, we visited a city, and it was called Sigishora. If you want to try and say that, say Sigishora. Sigishora, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a city on a hill, and it's a fortress city that dates, dates back to like the 1200s. Check it out. If you want to assault this city, you've got to get over that wall. Good luck with that to begin with. Uh, they surrounded it because the uh, Ottomans were coming and uh, there were many invaders to this uh, land, this city, but this was a wall they put up. And then check it out. Here's the gate that you have to get through <laughs> before you even get into the city. And there are archers up there shooting arrows with you. And then there's all these holes that they can use to drop things on your head, rocks and spill, boiling, whatever. And uh, check out this next few pictures. That's the, so there's multiple gates. You've got to get through the one gate and then the next gate. There used to be you know, barred and wooden gates there. And there's all these secret holes that they had where archers can just hide in there and get you as you're coming through. And then check out the next picture. This is another one of the gate. You've got to make it all the way through there. And then there's all these fortified buildings inside. Um, so some people might say, well, I'm going to go around and try and sneak in the back. Well, they've got towers all over the city. And um, each trade guild like the rope makers or the blacksmiths, had a tower they were responsible for manning. So in case of attack, they got into their towers, which is also where they lived, and they all knew, here's another picture of another tower, they all knew that their job was to defend the city against attack. They showed us in that city where they kept valuable things so that nobody could get in and steal it away. Our church should resemble this city. People with warped hearts, evil intentions, and wrong doctrine will come in here and try to challenge our core beliefs. People will come in here and try and change how we make disciples. And our church has to resemble a fortress city. We have been given this gospel and we are ready to stand in defense of it. We're ready to push back against anyone who challenges our major doctrines. We're ready to push back against people who would try and twist or warp the Christian life regarding the gospel. Well, if we're supposed to guard it, what is it that we actually believe that we're guarding? Well, check out these verses through 1 Timothy that we've covered. 1 Timothy 1.15, we'll put that on the screen. It says this. It says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Jesus came into this world from another world, heaven, to save sinners. We believe that. We'll defend that truth. Chapter 2, verses 4 to 6 says this. Who desires God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We believe God wants everyone to be saved, that people are saved through the knowledge of truth. Truth about what? Him, there's one God, and his son, there's one mediator. Jesus' work on the cross was a ransom. This is what we believe. What about chapter 4, verse 16, where it says this, Minister, pastor, elder, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. We believe the pastor of a church, the speaker of a church, needs to guard what he's saying to make sure it's closely aligned with what the Bible teaches. We believe that. What about chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, where it says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. We have to... Guard the gospel because teachers will try and twist it. They'll try and change what we believe and how we behave. Therefore, we must be a fortress city all ready to stand in defense against anyone who seeks to change that. We have to guard it, the Bible says. It says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, which is the gospel. The word guard makes me think of this night, which I've shown you before. Standing watch. Just try and get past me. Come on and bring it and you're going to get hurt. This is what we have to do. We must teach what is right. We must live in a way that aligns with this teaching. And then in our church, if anyone comes to try and change it, they need to be in for the fight of their life because it's not that easy to twist what we do. Sadly, many churches and even entire denominations over the past 50, 60 years in the United States have failed to guard the gospel. They have turned liberal in their beliefs. They have turned liberal in their behaviors. In what areas? Well, clergy, who becomes the messenger? Who's qualified to be a leader or teacher in God's church? They've abandoned 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 and 2. They've appointed ungodly leaders. What about doctrine? Churches and denominations have changed what they teach about heaven about hell, about the Bible, about how someone gets saved, about other religions. Their doctrine has changed. What about the Christian lifestyle? How must Christians live? Churches have changed their stance on morally controversial issues in our culture, and they have started to drift away from biblical teaching and biblical behaviors. What about the church itself? What goes on Sunday morning on the stage? How are we to worship? What about church government? How is a church to be run? Who gets to lead? How are decisions made? And over the past 50 to 60 years, several mainline denominations and churches have moved away from the biblical faith. 
They have woven worldly values into the life of the church and the clergy. How's that going? How's that going? It's not going well. I've got some stats to share with you in a moment, but just understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm saying that these denominations have made a choice to drift. Now, not every church in those denominations has made that. Some are fighting. Not every person, and maybe you feel like, that's my denomination he's talking about. Maybe not every person in these denominations has drifted with them. But organizationally, foundationally, they have changed. And they're declining. Liberal denominations since 1965 are declining rapidly. What about the RCIA? They're down 62% since 65. The Reformed Church of America. What about the United Church of Christ? They've lost over half of their members in the last 50 years. What about the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, PCUSA? They're down 47%. What about the Episcopal Church? Down 49%. What about the United Methodist Church? Down 33%. The ELCA started later, started in 1987, so they've had less time to decline. They're down 27%. Listen, in some of these stats, four to five million people have walked away from their denomination astronomical. Why? Why? It's not a mystery. Because godly people are hearing what's being taught and decided, and they know they need to walk away to find solid biblical teaching. Now, some people will say, well, all denominations are in decline. Not true. The PCA is up 790% the last 50 years. The EB Free Church... 749%. The Assemblies of God are up 430%. The SBC is up 46%. Now understand, I'm not saying that the more people you have, the better a church you are, or the more people your denomination has, the more godly your denomination is. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, look at what's going on in the church in the United States. Churches that have stepped away from biblical preaching and, and biblical living are seeing their people leave by the millions because God's people want solid biblical teaching somewhere. And these other churches that are standing their ground in what the Bible says and how Christians should live are receiving these refugees into their congregation. You have to see that there is a shift. We have to guard the gospel. Many churches are fighting to guard the gospel. Some are not. Now understand also that just because a church is in a conservative denomination doesn't mean it's a conservative church. There are churches within these denominations that are growing that have gone sideways. They have, as a church, walked away from solid biblical teaching. All right? So I'm not condemning just a denomination. I'm not condemning any individuals. But what I am saying is many of these denominations have made organizational changes to what they believe and we see how that's panning out and it's not good. They're headed for extinction. And that's the truth. We must guard the gospel and we see what happens when the gospel is not guarded. It says, O Timothy, guard the gospel entrusted to you. It's not yours to change. It's not yours to warp. It's yours to keep and to protect. Then it says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Write this down. Avoid false teaching. Guard the gospel and avoid false teaching. Avoid false teaching. These are very strong words. This is only 
two verses, but these are strong words in this half verse. It says, avoid. How am I to react if in my church false things start being taught? How am I to react if leaders in my church start stepping away from godliness and start teaching things that aren't in the Bible? I'm to avoid it. I'm to walk away from it. It means to turn and walk. I'm not supposed to sympathize with it. I'm not supposed to rationalize it. I'm supposed to turn and leave it. We've talked to many people in churches from all the denominations listed there, and for whatever reason, their leaders have gotten sideways or they've changed what they believe or how they're... And and as you hear what's being taught to their children, to their teenagers, what's being spoken from, from the front of what should be the herald of the gospel, and you say, wow, that's toxic. That's radioactive what they're feeding your children. That's worse than what you find in the back of your refrigerator. They say, well, what am I supposed to do? And the answer is the Bible says you're supposed to avoid it. You're supposed to turn and you're supposed to walk away when false things are taught in your church. You're supposed to avoid it. What if pastors are advocating sinful lifestyles? What if leaders are normalizing sin? You're supposed to turn and walk away. Turn and walk away. Avoid false teaching. It says here, avoid it, and then it calls it irreverent in the ESV. Irreverent. It can mean profane. It can, it can be translated worldly. It comes up in First and Second Timothy. It can be translated godless. It's irreverent. Um, irreverent. When I say profane, you dig into the definition of this word in the Greek, profane means the opposite of sacred. So a sacred thing in the Bible would be something that is specially devoted to the Lord. If you think in the Old Testament, there was the sacred holy of holies, and it's a special place. It's so special that you have to be careful when you go in there, who goes in there. You're supposed to cleanse yourself before you even get close to there. That That would represent a sacred place. Okay, profane is the opposite of sacred. Profane is like a place so universally despised in the town that anyone can do anything there and no one would care. Like, who cares about that place? It's profane. It's, it's, it's common. Go ahead and deface it or abuse it. Break the windows. Nobody cares because it's the opposite of sacred. Everyone agrees it's worth trampling. Check this out. This would be the kind of a living picture of what this word profane means. It's just like it's just like filthy and common and nobody cares about that because it's so worthless and run down. Now get this. You ready for this? The Bible uses this to describe teaching in some churches. It's profane. It's the opposite of sacred. It should be treated like that, trampled on like a trash-filled alley. That's about how much value you should put into what this person is saying. Authors, bloggers, clergy who are teaching false teaching are the equivalent of that in God's eyes. It's profane what they're saying. Doesn't matter the outfits they're wearing. Doesn't matter what's propping them up. The Bible calls it irreverent or profane. Then it says, avoid the irreverent babble. Next word is babble. That means empty words, chatter. So they've got plenty to say, but they have no basis for their claims. The word actually means to make empty. 
So imagine your nine-year-old son is hungry, and you say, all right, I'll get you some potato chips. And you grab the chips, you open it up, and you dump the chips in the trash can before his very eyes. And then you bring him the empty bag and say, here you go. How will he react? How will he react? You threw it all away! I was hungry! No, I just have an empty bag of chips! There's no chips in here! Right. It was emptied of what was valuable inside of it. Now, follow me here. This is one more way the Bible describes the teaching of a false teacher. It's been emptied of valuable contents. It's nothing more than an empty bag of chips. Imagine Christmas, children, imagine Christmas, you open, unwrap a present, you open the box, and not only is your iPad not in there, but mom and dad emptied it in the trash before they wrapped the box. There was value, they threw it away and gave you an empty box. How would you feel? That's the way Christians should feel when their teachers start emptying the message of God's Word. Hey! Where'd the truth go? Hey! This is empty and profane. Where did the value go? Implication, they dumped it out back. And God's people should demand to have it back. Guard the gospel. Avoid false teaching. It's irreverent. It's babble. It's emptied of things that are of substance. And then, not even done yet, irreverent, babble, contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. You see, people will say, it sounds biblical and spiritual, so they'll say, oh, well, we, we teach the same thing. We believe the same thing. I get, it's biblical, um, and it's false. The Bible calls it false. No, it's not. Black and white, right and wrong, it's not biblical. It's, not, it's false. And it's a contradiction, which means it contradicts what the truth is. This is the truth. This is what you're teaching. They are completely different. All right? So we're supposed to avoid even the, the, um, the ability that they have of trying to call it truth when it's not. The New American Standard calls this, says it's contradictions of false knowledge, or New American Standard says opposing arguments. Another translation calls it absurdities of false knowledge, but it's a contradiction. It's an absurdity. It's opposed to what we teach. It's false. Truth people really love this sermon. They're like, yeah, tell people what's right and wrong. And the grace people are more like, this sounds so mean. You're telling people that what they believe is wrong and you're insulting people. I understand this is a truth message. This is not a message aimed at showing sympathy to people who are caught up in false teaching. This is a strong call to guard what is right. And if you're a truth person, you're loving it. If you're a grace person, you're like, this doesn't seem very kind. But let me remind you that while Jesus was gracious and patient and merciful with sinners, he was merciless with false teachers. Prove it, all right? He called them wolves. You ever called anybody a wolf? Anybody who has a pastoral title like bishop or elder or anybody dressed up in it? Have you called them a wolf? Because Jesus has. He called them thorn bushes, children of the devil, thieves, 
blind guides, hypocrites, my favorite. He called them offspring of vipers. Your mama was a snake! Whitewashed graves filled with dead men's bones. That's what your Jesus thinks about false teachers. He said they will be sentenced to hell. Doesn't matter the degree they have. Doesn't matter the college they went to. Doesn't matter who endorses them. They will be sentenced to hell. These are men and women called clergy. We have to guard against letting them influence us. What were these false teachings in Ephesus? We actually don't know a lot about what they were exactly teaching, which is probably for the best. Because if we did, then false teachers today could be like, oh, well, I don't teach exactly that, so I'm good. But we actually get more of a description of how they act uh, and what they produce. So, so we, we have a description of the effects of false teaching on people. Um, so now we can trace the fruit that they're creating in the hearts of people, and then we can trace that back and say maybe they're not a true shepherd. But we do know a few things about what they were believing. We know that they, some of them were teaching myths, false fables. People were superstitious, and so could have been Jewish myths or Greek myths, but it was like crazy far-fetched things that, were, that, that was taking advantage of the superstition of the people and, you know, you'd go to this one small group and this guy would be teaching these far-fetched fables and, and, and people were buying into it. They were like, oh, wow, you're so spiritual, you know these things. There were other people, though, who were using the Old Testament and they were getting all conspiracy about it. They, like, had these genealogies and they could, like, trace, uh, you know, when the Christ would come and they maybe even were challenging the notion that Jesus was the Messiah. So, so endless genealogies is what the Bible calls it. So, so whether someone was getting up and sharing a super spiritual picture of heaven and hell and how, how you can experience that through these myths, or someone was getting up and saying, open your Old Testament and I'll show you this code that I've cracked, it was false. Most people knew it was absurd, but some were buying into it. I think we have these same types of false doctrines today. You know, I think back to, what was it, the late 90s or the early 2000s when books like the Bible Code came out. Remember that? The Bible Code. You can find these secrets if you spin these verses around and overlap them and do the math. You could find codes in the Bible that predict the future. And it's like, no. No. That's just conspiracy theory and bad math. The Da Vinci Code came out. Oh, there's secrets in church history you don't know about. And we're going to reveal these secrets. Intrigue and when I was a teacher in Glen Ellen, a man in Glen Ellen walked down this, handed a, the uh, Da Vinci Code out to every single person in his neighborhood because he was so moved by it. They made a movie out of it, and people started forming their religious convictions based on this book and changing the way they thought about God and the church. Think about New Age books like The Shack or Deepak Chopra, New Age super spiritual mystic teachers today. You would think Deepak Chopra, because he believes things that are more Eastern and New Agey would stay in his arena, but no, he writes a book called Jesus, tries to tell us the truth about how our Messiah really was born normal and became a Messiah by elevating his consciousness, and you can do it too, and you're like, that's false. Millions of people are reading it. They're changing what they think about Christ and God because of his writings, and they're false. And you can see how 
In the early church, they had more of the technical conspiracy teaching, and then they had more of the mystic, super spiritual teaching, and we have the same things today. But if God's people don't know to avoid these things that are false, then they will take them in, and it'll change and warp their faith. We have to guard the gospel like a fortress city. We have to avoid false teaching because it's irreverent, profane, babble, contradiction, and Jesus condemned it. The third point is this. We shouldn't swerve away from the faith. It says, verse 21 says, For by professing it, that's false teaching, some have swerved from the faith. So now, you, you got to the point where professing it, meaning you're a, you're a teacher of this stuff, and you're like, I'm going to share this with other people. You've swerved from the faith. Or, I, or you get to the point where you believe it so much, you're going to say, yeah, I'm committed to that. Because I'm in his Bible study, and I think what he, and I'm saying it, I think what he says is true. Those who have professed that they align with this have now swerved from the faith. Meaning they can't claim to have the Orthodox faith, followers of Christ, and profess to be followers of this teaching. It's one or the other, black and white. They professed it, and so it's wrong. Now that phrase there, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Swerved from means that they have missed the mark. It's a term used in archery to miss the mark. Uh, it, it's, it's shooting the arrow and you don't even hit the target. You've missed. Those who are standing up teaching false things in the church have missed the target. So here's a picture of my son, Jared. We were playing darts and uh, he's red. I'm yellow. He looks happy, doesn't he? Why do you think he's happy? Because he hit the bullseye dead on. Like I couldn't even say liner. Like it was off and, and debate it. He hit it straight in the middle. And I thought I was doing pretty good because I hit a 15 and a 17. And, and then my last shot, see my last arrow down there on the bottom? Guess what he told me I did? Guess what he was chanting and mocking me with? He's like, you missed. You missed. He hit the bullseye. I missed the target entirely. Now, this is one more way that God is in his word condemning the teachings of some people in his church. They are the yellow dart at the bottom. They've missed. They've missed. They're not even on the target. No points awarded. They've missed. I took Jared to a carnival because he's got a pretty good arm. We were at the Payless Friendship Fest. We were walking around and he loves the games. I hate the games. Waste of money, right? Go to the games and suddenly $50 has left and what do you have? You have like this tiny little plastic fish. <laughs> Could have gotten this at the dollar store for a dollar. Just spent 50 bucks for this plastic fish. But he wanted to play the game, so I was like, all right. You can play two games. $10. So he sees the game where they have those three metal milk jug-like things and then you've got to throw the ball and knock all three off the table. And he's like, oh, Dad, I pitched this year in Little League. Give me a shot. I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. Ten bucks, flush down the toilet, but give it a shot. <laughs> and the carnival worker sits there, and he just smiles like, good luck, kid. So Jared gets in there, he looks at it, and, he looks, and, and you know, one of the tricks is, like, one of these things weighs like a 1,000 pounds. So the softball literally bounces off, and, like, the, you know, top jug just, like, falls, and one of them is knocked off the table. So he's looking, he's eyeballing. He's like, Let me try again. I'm like, all right, this is it. It's your last game. 
So he tries again, and he gets two of them off. And I'm like, oh, well. And the carnival worker's like, oh. So then he suckers Grandpa into giving him another chance. <laughs> grandpa, Grandpa, let me try, let me try. So he goes back, and the carnival worker is so... He's like, he, this carnival worker takes a 20 out of his own pocket and rubber bands it to, to the drug, saying, go ahead, give it a shot. If you knock all three off, you even get the 20 bucks and the stuffed animal. And Jared's like, oh. <laughs> so... He whipped this ball. I don't know what he did. He hit it just right. All three of them flew off the table, and the carnival, carnival worker was just like. <laughs> Jared's like, 20 bucks, give it to me. And the carnival worker's like, I just lost 20 bucks to this kid. Because <laughs> he got it. He hit it all off, and uh, Jared did not pay me back for the $10 I wasted <laughs> on that game. No, Dad, it's my money. I'm like, it cost you 15 to win 20. He didn't get that. Just wants to go to Target and spend it. So it says here, by professing it, some have missed, swerved, missed the faith. The first two times he tried that game, he, he missed. And guess what he walked away with? This. And there are people who are going to, pastors, priests, bishops, elders, they're going to walk to the gates of heaven and miss and walk away with this because they missed. And their people will follow them. They missed the faith. This is a condemnation. But when Jared hit it, he hit it, he got rewarded. He was so happy. And those who hit it are going to save themselves and those who listen to them. Don't swerve away from the faith. If I had to make a list, of, a short list of things that can hijack the gospel in our church, I'd put it together. I don't want you to think that the problem is out there. Good thing you're not part of that denomination or in that church. The problem is in here. We will be tempted to drift. You understand that? So, so how will we be threatened? How will our gospel come under fire? What can hijack our affections away from Christ? Um, a big one in the world is the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel uses Jesus to acquire your real God, which is money. Come to Jesus and you get a free car. He makes all of your dreams come true. If you have enough faith, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, you'll have no problems. It's a false gospel. Our church and our fellowship of churches is going to have to be careful because as we expand into Africa and South America, this is rampant teaching. And if we let those preachers get into our movement, they can pollute what we're trying to accomplish because it's a false gospel. Legalism is another hijacker of the gospel. Legalism turns faith into a rule book. And maybe you've attended a legalistic church. You can be saved in spite of being in a legalistic church, but you cannot be saved through legalism. You hear that? If I come to you with a list of 50 things you need to do, that are external, unbiblical, focused on gray areas, and you do those 50 things, you are still not a Christian. Changing your outfit does not make you a follower of Christ. And if you're used to a church that tried to govern everything external about your faith, what you do, what you don't do, what you wear, how you look, it's a false gospel. The lie is, if we control everything on the outside, your inside will be fine, and that's a lie. God must control the heart through salvation. And the church isn't supposed to be this group of watchdog policemen that try and govern the gray areas in a believer's life. 
Should you be responsible? Should you be orthodox in what you do and how you live? Should you be careful what you do in the world? Yeah, but it's not the church's job to give you this Santa Claus list of legalistic laws. It's a false gospel. Pluralism is another false gospel. It can hijack our church. Pluralism believes our faith is true, but so are the rest of the faiths. And you have your way, but they have their way, and all roads lead to God. These people would say, amen, if you tell them that you believe Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again. Amen, yeah, I believe that, but I believe that the person in the other religion over there gets to go to heaven too. That's pluralism. It means Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't the other way. Jesus plus. It's a false gospel. Extremism is another one that can hijack our church. Um, This is when something becomes polarizing and militant in the church. The church becomes polarizing and militant about something controversial. Okay, so follow me here. It could be a good thing. It could be a right thing. It could be a true thing. But if a church goes extreme and militant and obsessive about a good thing, it can hijack the gospel. It can be a theology. It can be something that's true and biblical. But a church can get all crazy about something like eschatology or soteriology, about a doctrine, and it can hijack the church. It becomes a problem when they redefine orthodoxy and they swing out there. Maybe they're even still orthodox, but they swing out there into a polarizing view and they say, this is the test. And if you're not with us, you're not even a Christian. That's extremism. They won't budge. And they never stop talking about the same thing. It becomes their mission. So it can become theology. It can become political. Some churches, politics and trying to change the local government becomes what their mission is. It takes over. It hijacks the gospel. Um, It can actually be a social cause. It can be a church that takes on a social cause and then gets militant and feverish and dangerous and unlawful in their devotion to this social cause. And it takes over the gospel. It's called extremism. They're out there and they won't budge. Hijacks the gospel. Prosperity, legalism, pluralism, extremism. The next one's liberalism. We already talked about that. Churches that will rethink or compromise their core beliefs and they'll warp their behaviors. You can be a Christian, they'll say, and keep your sin. In fact, is it even sin? They're rethinking that. You can be a leader and keep your sin, because we don't even know if it is sin. They rethink major doctrines like the inerrancy of God's Word start to finish, the sufficiency of Christ as the only way to be saved, the truth about heaven and hell and whether or not there is eternal condemnation for the lost, liberalism. They'll also redefine what's right and wrong in the church and certain lifestyles and certain relational choices become right when God's Word says they're wrong. This is liberalism. These hijack the gospel. Prosperity, legalism, pluralism, extremism, liberalism, and there's more. We have to guard our church against these things. Guard the gospel. Avoid false teaching. Don't swerve away from the faith. I love how it ends, though. It says, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Then it says this, grace be with you. I love that. Grace be with you. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God giving you something you have not earned. 
It is by grace that we have been saved. If God had never reached out with a free gift of eternal life, no one in this room would be going to heaven. Your best efforts to try and please God will fall short without His grace. Our church will fail if God stops extending to us His grace. We learn here that it's from God's grace that we find strength and assurance. It's from God's grace that we understand we get salvation. And we also realize that we cannot accomplish what He's commanded us in this book apart from His activity in us. I can't live up to this book if God isn't at work in my heart. Our church can't live up to this book without God giving us grace. And therefore, the end of the story here is beautiful. It says, hey, do this, guard this, be this, avoid this, but hey, hey, grace be with you. You need his grace if this is going to succeed. And as a pastor, I just think to myself, how, how are these verses going to impact people in this room? And listen, maybe there are some people here who are being dragged away from the teaching you've been given since you were a child. Someone is challenging what you believe, pulling you away from Christ, making you rethink and redefine what truth is, and maybe God is saying to you, don't swerve. Maybe there are people here who are losing spiritual battles with an area of sin, and in your lifestyle, you are starting to rethink how you can live the Christian life. You're saying you can still be a follower of Christ and live this way. Hey, don't swerve from the faith. Don't let anyone redefine what righteous living is for you. You know the truth. Maybe your head has been filled with false teaching and these people are influencing you and you're tempted to start rethinking what you've believed for so long. Hey, don't swerve from the faith. Maybe you just need a reminder that after all is commanded and expected of you, you need to fall at the feet of the Lord and ask for His enabling grace to do it. Maybe you feel like, I just wish I had more strength to do what I knew was right. Maybe I had more wisdom to know what is true. Hey, hey, grace be with you. God's grace needs to come into your heart. Grace isn't just a one-time event where you come to Jesus, get His grace, and it's all over. You have to keep coming back. You have to know and rely on His grace. His mercies are new every morning. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray with you. Maybe you just need encouragement to stay the course. I'd like to pray with you and ask that God would take all that we've heard from his word and apply it faithfully to your heart. Let's let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask for your protection on our church. You have challenged us to fight the good fight, to wage the war of the faith, to stand in defense of what is true and orthodox. Help us, Lord, we depend on your grace. Reveal to us, Lord, if there's compromise, there's people twisting what we think. We pray that you would purify us, Lord, of false teaching. Help us, Lord, in the future to not stray from what's true and right. Father, in in Christian living, we pray that you would help us to live in line with the word of truth. Help us, Lord, to avoid straying to avoid twisting and justifying sin. Start with our leaders and then move to our people and keep us humbly on the right road and give us grace where we fail. 
Help us to give grace to those around us when they fail. Lord, we know that you love your church. You're building your church. It will succeed and the gates of hell will not prevail. Help us to stand in defense of what's true and valuable. May we guard the gospel. Keep us on the straight path. Remind us what is true. Direct us and correct us. Show us the proper way to go. Bless us as we follow you. We pray this in your name. Amen.